many of us ever know what it is to become the perfect version of ourselves? This is Decoding Superhuman with your host, Boomer Anderson. Today is a good day. You know what? Every day is a good day. Superhumans, thank you again for joining me. It's Boomer Anderson here, your host of the journey I like to call this podcast. As always, we go out to the fringes, and today we're really going out to the fringes in the world of health, and back to the mainstream, I bring on experts to provide you evidence-driven strategies which can help you become more superhuman. My guest today is Dr. Zaina Kayat. I met Zaina at Singularity University here in the Netherlands, and she presented on the future of healthcare, and I wanted to share that information with you, and she was gracious enough to come on the podcast and agree to talk about it. So Zaina is the future strategist at St. Elizabeth, a health and social impact enterprise with a major focus on home care. In 2017, Zaina was on secondment from Mars Discovery District, an innovation hub in Toronto, Canada, to the Reshape Health Innovation Center in Nijmegen, the Netherlands. At the Reshape Center, she had what I may call the best job title in the world, the Innovation Sherpa-in-Chief where she worked on several key initiatives to strengthen the Dutch health innovation ecosystem. At Mars, Zaina led the health system innovation platform from 2014 to 2017, helping smooth the path to adoption of health innovation by healthcare systems in Canada and around the world. Zaina is adjunct faculty at Rotman School of Management in the health sector strategy stream. Say that three times fast. Zaina completed her PhD in biochemistry from the University of Toronto, followed by a long career in strategy consulting, including as a principal in the healthcare practice of the Boston Consulting Group. Dr. Kayat has been on the faculty of Singularity University, again, that's where I met her, in the Exponential Medicine Group since 2016. With a title like the future of healthcare, Zaina and I got to delve into a little, just, just a little bit. Zaina and I talked about the current status of healthcare. Zaina identifies the paradigm shifts which are happening and need to happen in order to take healthcare to the next level. We talked tech, potential risk, and all kinds of things, including, well, our designer babies in our future. Zaina also gives her best resources for all the futurists out there in case you want to read up a little bit more on this. As somebody who's really into the forefront in the innovation of health, I really enjoyed my conversation with Zana. She always pushes me to investigate all kinds of new technologies and strategies out there. You can find the show notes for this one at decodingsuperhuman.com backslash Zana. That's Z-A-Y-N-A. And you know what? There's so much information in this show. I just want to get on to the episode. So I hope you enjoy. I would love to hear your feedback, but... On to the episode with Dr. Zaina Kaya. Zaina, welcome to the show. Hi. Well, I want to thank you so much for being here. And, you know, Zaina, I wanted to, uh, because you're involved in so much, I-, I wanted to give the audience a sense, and we'll, of course, have an introduction recorded separately, a sense of exactly who is Zaina Kaya. Um, well, thanks for having me, Boomer. It's always a treat to uh, to chat about this kind of stuff. So, you know, quick background: I call myself a converted scientist. So, I did a PhD in biochemistry in diabetes in the late '90s, uh, and then had an inkling to get out of science, and so went down to business to Canada's version of Wall Street, called Bay Street, and worked with um, a pretty prestigious firm called the Boston Consulting Group. I called myself a business doctor, so I'd solve messy problems in business. Uh, and then I really had an itch for healthcare, maybe 
because of my background or because the problems are so messy. Um, and so just through a series of other things, I made my way to start to know the sector uh, after leaving BCG and uh, ultimately made my way to this place called Mars, which is Canada's global address, I'd say, for innovation, a major innovation hub in Toronto. And uh, I led the innovation, the health innovation uh, group there, working on getting high-impact technologies adopted at scale so patients and consumers could benefit. And then I did a year last year in the Netherlands on a, like a sabbatical with my family. I worked on a lot of fun projects in the Dutch health system. Uh, and uh, just on the side, I'm a uh, a faculty with Singularity University, which is a virtual university based in California, to help educate society about exponentials and what they might do to civil society and the economy. Uh, and I'm a professor at the at the business school here in Toronto. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> that that's it, right? Thank you very much for the explanation. Now. Uh, Today, we're going to talk about healthcare, of course. We're going to talk about the main topic is the future of healthcare. I'm curious about your opinion on the current status of healthcare, maybe around the world, but specifically in the developed world. So it's a big question, right? We could do a one-week podcast series, uh, 24 <laughs> hours a day on that. There's millions of people uh, worrying about that question all the time right now. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, what we really have is a, a fundamental kind of disequilibrium um, between uh, the demand for health services by a population that's uh, growing in size, uh, staying alive longer and accumulating uh, illness and disease, uh, and, uh, and a system that was designed not for that volume and scale and complexity and therefore it can't meet the demands. And so when you know demand exceeds supply, perfect breeding ground to do things differently. And so there's just this really big explosion of, of innovation, not just tech innovation, just reimagining fundamental paradigms of how we've designed health and care. Uh, and so that's the emerging, the developing world. And then the emerging world, you know, never had a healthcare system to speak of that they need to now fix. And so that's kind of building new systems of health on, from scratch learning from the lessons and mistakes of the West. And so that's opening up a whole other um, bolus of innovation, but from a different angle. I, I've been fortunate enough to see you speak a few times, Zaina. Yeah. And you've had uh, some very interesting perspectives on the key contributors to individual health. Do you mind running through those real quick before yeah. I start to pick your brain about the future of health? So let's kind of first unpack this word health, because you said health. You didn't say healthcare and you didn't say medicine. Ah, yes. right? So those are three different words, right? So if you think of the big bubble as health, within that there's healthcare and within that there's medicine. So medicine is the easy one. It's a science. And that science uh, is really focused on um, largely using technology as an intervention, either to diagnose when something might be wrong. So think of an MRI or an X-ray or a blood test uh, or to treat. Think of a drug you know, or, uh, you know, a, a puffer for asthma or whatever. It's that science is the dominant paradigm today that dominates how we organize healthcare, which is the second word. Healthcare is just the services you do to help, you know, maintain uh, or restore health. And medicine is just the largest tool in the toolbox right now of those services. So that's healthcare. Uh, and then health, health is how you feel. <laughs> Health is how you manage and cope in the face of a challenging physical or mental or emotional situation and how your community uh, manages to cope 
and self-manage in the face of those challenges. So the future of health is where the world is going, whereas we used to equate health and medicine as the same thing, <laughs> and health and healthcare is the same thing, and it's not the case. And so therefore, your question about what drives health, you know, I always say zip code or postal code trumps DNA code right? And, and it's absolutely true. So we fully know that about 70 or 80% of what causes anyone's health is, you know, really, you know, the socioeconomic status into which they were born, literacy, language, and just access. And that then drives behaviors around smoking, sleeping, eating, alcohol, and exercise, and stress. And then that drives all the downstream stuff that leads you to need healthcare services. Genetics plays a little role in there, you know, if you and I had everything else equal and you had the bad genes and I had the good genes, you might get sicker than me. But really our, you know, postal code uh, and where we were born and, and our social context affects it. And then the last thing is the, the actual medical care you get is about 10% of the impact of your health, right? Yet it drives 90% of the budgets of pretty much every Western health system. So we have this big mismatch between what causes health and where we're spending the money, which is basically mopping it up at the end when you know you can't really do much anymore uh, because you know a person has had to have a leg amputated or whatever. So it sounds like if you know ten percent is resulting in ninety percent of the cost, sounds like a lot of opportunity there. Massive, uh, which presents the perfect segue to talk mm -hmm. about the future of health. Yeah. And you have some awesome ways of putting this. And I want to give you the floor to talk. I think it was six pillars or yeah. maybe a few paradigms as well. Six yeah. shifts. Yeah. Uh, do you mind touching on those? Yeah. So under this background of, you know, I, I always say there's like three big forces that are coming together to make like a perfect storm, uh, which is allowing these six shifts uh, to transpire. So, you know, like I said, one is we just can't. You know, society is not willing or able to afford to buy healthcare services in the way they're designed today. It just doesn't meet the demand. Two is there's technology to do something about that. There never was before, not like it is today, you know, available, accessible, democratized, cheap, and fast. And then three is that consumers have woken up. You know, we are not the dumb, passive, uh, you know, black box of our health. We have a lot of information and uh, and we're pulling these shifts. So so within, you know, that, that kind of perfect storm, this is the direction health and healthcare and medicine is going. In many pockets, it's already there. So, you know, that quote, I think from Gibson, the future is already here. It's just unevenly distributed. So these aren't some far out concepts like, you know, that there's going to be flying cars, you know, in 2300. <laughs> Uh, you know, this is your no Jetson scenario. <laughs> the Jetsons, right? It's just it's not the dominant paradigm, but it's absolutely here today. So this is not you know uh, science fiction. So so the sixth shift. So the first shift is the shift from healthcare and medicine being designed to be reactive to being proactive, if not predictive. So reactive is what we call, you know, not a healthcare system, a sickness care system that only kind of starts to kick in when symptoms are there or really things have just gotten to a point. And then it comes in and it fixes you. And that's all we could do with the tools we've had. And we've designed medicine to come in when there's a problem, not to stop it from ever happening in the first place. So now, you know, both in terms of awareness and public health, but most importantly, data uh, and new sources of data, 
not only can we design healthcare to be uh, proactive and even preventative, which there's a little bit of that, you know, like biking lanes and things, but now predictive. So, you know, you probably saw in the last couple of weeks, Google now can mine data from all the different kind of ways you interact in your digital exhaust and predict with pretty pinpoint accuracy, a whole range of illnesses, right? Mental illnesses, physical illnesses, and we're seeing more and more of that. And these tools, you know, don't fit in the normal model of medicine. And so that's where disruption is really happening. I think you mentioned when we were speaking before about you can even see this in things like the Apple Watch, right? Where we're seeing it being able to predict uh, all kinds of, well, based on the data of even, I think it was arterial fibrillation as well as, you know, potassium levels, right? Yeah. Yeah. Potassium, heart rate, blood pressure, uh, oxygen saturation. I mean, you name it, we can get much more uh, uh, predictive uh, using new sets of data that are not the blunt, blunt instruments that we've had before, which is like, man, your weight, your blood results, and maybe a couple of radiology images. (laughs) And my favorite one, BMI, which is just so so blunt. So out there. Yeah, So speaking of blunt, that gets us to the next shift. The next shift, again, because we're enabled by technology and progress, is, you know, from uh, a kind of one-size-fits-all way to organize services to a, we call an N of one, right? So this is a shifted precision, tailored, hyper-personalized, configurable, pick a word. But when it's one size fits all, you know, that was the easiest way to organize services. You know, think of it, you know, all of us have been a student at some point. This idea that every human learns by sitting in a room with 30 people and one professor at the front of the room is the way everyone optimizes their learnings. It's just fallacy. And so, you know, there's a distribution. And so, but that's the most efficient way to organize services. Everybody kind of gets the same thing. Every woman who turns 40 must get screened for breast cancer. You know, even though we know now with pinpoint accuracy who we should be screening. So that shift to personalized health and healthcare and medicine is massive. Uh, again, that presents a whole slew of new business models that medicine was not designed for. You know, you think of, you know, when you have a phone plan with your Vodafone or, or KPN or whoever, uh, you know, they can now price your plan down to the minute of the day that you could have different pricing depending on what you need. You know, that's the direction uh, we're heading with this big shift, you know, from one size fits all uh, to end of one medicine. So that's exciting. Um, That gets a lot of uh, implications, both in terms of biology precision, so cancer, you know, or or pinpointing whether you will react to certain drugs or I won't. And that's what most people think about. But the other type of hyper-personalization could be around, you know, personalizing your care for your specific context. You know, if you don't like to come physically to the doctor's office, do a virtual call, you know? If you feel like you need to be in person because you get more value out of that, you know, there's a choice then, right? Right now there is no choice. So so that's a massive shift that's challenging a lot of business models. <laughs> yeah, and, and now we have a future where we may not have to follow these diet gurus, et cetera. We have a future where we'll know exactly what we need to eat in order to get the nutrition that our bodies exactly. need. And it's not just for your biology at one point in time, right? The, the, the nutrition you need maybe when you woke up this morning might be very different from the nutrition you need tomorrow if, you know, some infectious bug got into your system, right? Because that's going to change the whole 
composition of your microbiota. So this kind of temporal ability and dynamic to tailorize versus, you know, you know, they have this dream that they'll you know, one day do a genetic test on every baby and then they'll know for their life, you know, how to deal with them. Like that's such a naive view because your genes become, you know, they can be changed by your environment called epigenetics then those make proteins and then those proteins interact with all these things and that is changing every minute of every day so it's a it's a hyper hyper science yeah and what we do a lot what we do in our coaching practices with the genetics and the epigenetics side but you touched on something called the microbiome which mm -hmm. maybe this isn't the right point but I, w I would love to hear what you think about the microbiome studies that are going on what we don't what we know and then probably more importantly what we don't know because i realize it's relatively new science it's very new, but it's going to move fast because, again, the, the technology tools to deal with it are nothing like what we had, you know, when we elucidated DNA. So if you think about it, your biology, any of you on the, you know, listening to this podcast, the human cellular tissue in your body is a very minor. It'd be like what our sun on Earth is compared to the, all the stars in the entire galaxy, compared to um, uh, microbiotic uh, and fungi and all these other um, organisms that are completely foreign to the human tissue. So they're pretty much calling the shots. We're just this passive passenger. Uh, and now more and more as they can uh, look at the DNA of these bugs in our body uh, and other features of what proteins they're making, what uh, electrolytes they're secreting into our circulation, you know, they're really in the midst of, you know, as I understand it, of, of reframing disease completely. Uh, there's this thing called the gut-brain axis where, you know, you, you know, what's going on in your gut with your bugs, uh, you know, tells your brain what to do and how to behave, and what to eat, and when to feel sad, and when not to feel sad. And so it's challenging the very fundamental basis of medicine, which was designed around what we could see at the time, body parts, you know, and then, you know, we classified diseases back in 1910, and we haven't changed those classifications based on body parts, you know. So it is, you know, opening up a whole new world, which is all in this shift, this second shift of precision, because now you can really understand what's going on. And at the end of the day, the food you eat, you know, is the only really major thing that could affect how these bugs are behaving uh, and changing the rest of your biology. So third shift uh, is the shift from, um, this is the, the location or the modality of where services uh, in healthcare are received. So pretty much you ask anybody, you know, what's an image they have of healthcare? It's a hospital or a doctor. And really that doctor is either at a hospital or at a clinic. That's the whole framework and the paradigm was around institution-based care because this stuff was so complicated and the resources so highly trained that you had to physically go to a place to get the services. And that's still the dominant paradigm. So this is the shift to, you know, pick a D, de-physicalize, decentralize, disintermediate, demonetize the high capital, high labor models of delivering uh, health and care services. Like we've seen in every other institution, you know, you, you might be younger than me, Boomer, but you know, there used to be a day that there was a bank on every corner uh, because the only way you could get cash was to go to this building and meet this highly trained person called the teller, you know, and he or she would distribute your money in a very narrow hours of the day. And you had your little book that you opened up and got <laughs> stamps in, right? Yeah, I, yeah. I remember those yeah. days. I <laughs> okay, you look younger than you are, Boomer. Um, so, you know, I don't know if you guys had this in Europe, but, you know, there used to be this company called the uh, the Travel, what were they called? 
the travel store, was it? No. Flight Center. Do you remember? You know, so this was, you know, again, at every street corner, it was a retail model that you had to go in there to book a flight <laughs> with a highly trained travel agent. <laughs> you I, know? I still walk so, by those here in the Netherlands sometimes. And yeah. I, you know, because I'm from the US, but I can't tell you the last time I've gone in and spoke to a travel. I don't think no. I ever have. Right. Exactly what's happening in healthcare is it doesn't mean hospitals and doctor offices go away, but for those who are able and willing and it works better for them, this new set of channels open up that are fully decentralized, whether that's virtual completely or, you know, uh, minute clinics, you know, in all the malls or, you know, w- w- uh, Walmart or, you know, the grocery store store or whatever, becoming the place where you go to get your services, if you need a physical interaction at all, pharmacies. So that's what's happening. Uh, and that allows a lot more choice. And frankly, the constraints of cost, because a day at a hospital is is like, you know, 10 or 15 X what a virtual visit could have been. So, so all that's, and that's largely being enabled by technology. That's, uh, you know, the price point is making it amenable, just like every other industry is decentralized and consumer pull and willingness uh, because every other part of their life is in the 21st century and they feel like this time warp (laughs) <laughs> you know, when they come to healthcare <laughs> and they're asked to fax their results, you know, and stuff like that. So, Ooh, the fax machine, <laughs> the fax machine. I always tell, you know, my students that, uh, you know, the fax machine, I think something like 35 million new fax machines get made a year. Uh, and these things don't die. Right. So that's on top of all the old ones. Um, and, uh, and there's two industries that use that. That's the law industry. They still use fax legal and healthcare and then pagers, you know, that's, that's us in healthcare and drug dealers. So <laughs> there you have it. So that's the third shift, right? So, so let's recap the shifts. We're going, you know, from uh, reactive to predictive from one size fits all to really an N of one and highly precise from uh, institution centered care to fully decentralized and what I call digital, you know, the seamless interplay between digital and physical experiences. So then we get to the fourth shift. The fourth is about the duration of how you experience and receive services. So again, because of the constraints of time and distance and place and cost, and availability of resources, and frankly, knowledge and science, we design medicine to be intermittent and episodic, right? You get, you know, if you're diabetes, the standard of care is every three or four months that you come in, you do blood work, you get this measure of how much sugar is in your blood, and that decides what's going to happen for the rest of the next quarter. Well, you know, all those biomarkers, your weight, your blood pressure, your potassium, we can now measure continuously with, you know, tools like wearables, Uh, implantables, durables, smart shirts, and the whole bit. And so that changes the paradigm because now you have a continuous flow of information to course correct very early or again, to proactively find signals. And so it's moving from episodic and intermittent to continuous, uh, integrated, not siloed, you know, very team-based and frankly, holistic. And that is challenging paradigms because healthcare was designed, you know, by body parts, you know, with the belief that those systems don't mm-hmm. <laughs> interact exactly and by care setting hospitals doctors gps so if i understand this right uh the future of, if we're looking at the future we're going to have much more integrated sort of systems thinking view to health but also will my cardiologist be able to talk to my general practitioner without me f- having to fill out the same forms <laughs> over and over again yeah 
first of all, forms go away. <laughs> um, uh, and again, the cardiologist is talking to the primary care doctor already today, but in pockets. It's the, you know, the more advanced, more forward thinking, you know, do it because it's just right for the patient. <laughs> but it is getting to be a lot easier to do that and to take the friction out of that communication, you know, despite the silos and the barriers. So that integration is, is it's already happening, but it's going to get easier and easier. And then the ability of, say, your cardiologist or even your personal trainer or whoever to help you make better choices based on a continuous feed of data, you know, is going to really smarten things up and bring like, I call it like an intelligence layer to a fairly, you know, dumb, blunt and crude practice today. Um, so, so that is very exciting. But, you know, again, you think of all the impact on the institutions of medicine that were not designed for that kind of data. Um, that's why it's taking so long. Can I, can I ask you just a quick side question, Zaina? And I know just privacy. That's a big concern among people right now. And all of what you're talking about is sort of exposing that. I have my own views on privacy, but I'd love to hear you. Yeah. So, you know, my kind of provocative statement is like privacy is a myth. And, you know, the point is, you know, it's kind of, I, I use the, ex the explanation of, let's say you were coming out with, you know, a radio that you plugged into the wall. Nobody would be like, how are you making sure the electrical plug is safe? Well, you just have to. There are standards and you have to comply to them <laughs> to be able to produce an electrical, you know, uh, using uh, object. Same with digital data, right? Like there are, there's already rules, there's standards, there's, there's this thing called privacy by design that is kind of a global standard to how to build privacy into all your processes from the beginning. So you just have to do it. And if you don't do it, you're out, right? You're out before you even get started or you're out if you dare to get into the market and then something happened, uh, you know, you, you're booted. So it's very important, of course, <laughs> it has to be, but it's not impossible. The tools exist and let's just get on with it and move on to the more harder questions, which is how are we going to re-engineer a whole set of institutions that were designed to never really change? So, so now, you know, we're proactive, we're personalized, uh, we're decentralized, uh, and we're continuous. And so the next shift is the shift of power from, you know, a very, uh, you know, provider or, you know, i.e. your doctor or your health system makes the calls uh, in terms of decision-making power to the person, the patient, the user, the consumer, pick a word. I call that the shift to people-powered healthcare. Um, so this is a major, um, you know, disintermediation of all the knowledge and decision-making power from the center and, uh, and the highly paid experts and trained to us because information's democratized. You know, we don't need to go to medical school for, you know, 12 years to be able to um, wade through the data and information and, and help you know, make our own kind of differential diagnoses and make choices. And so you know, does that mean you never need a professional? No, never, not at all, because stuff can get complex, but it becomes much more of a partnership, you know, and even plain between you and your health provider team uh, versus you being, you know, the person that healthcare gets done to. And your job is just to passively accept it and obey orders. <laughs> that paradigm shift is, is shifting. Uh, and it's really, to me, the fuel for all the others. Something you mentioned earlier about how our interactions with our either our physician or our medical community takes place. Well, my doctor is in London, person that I work with, and that's all done virtual. But one of the things that you just mentioned in terms of 
power and really the interaction. What I like about him and the reason why I go to London for him is, or virtually for him, is that power sharing and sort of he is in a way, he's an auditor of the things that I do, but he appreciates the fact that I bring in a lot of research behind my own personal recommendations for myself. So just like you might not be anything like, you know, my parents who are still of the generation that, you know, like they you know, honor and obey <laughs> their doctor and anything they say they do and they would never question it. So there's a segmentation of, you know, readiness and interest to be people powered. It's the same on the clinician or the health team side. There's a segmentation. So while your physician, you know, loves it that you come with a point of view and they're helping you, uh, others, you know, will carry up there. You've probably seen these mugs that say, you know, Google didn't go to medical school. <laughs> and they'll drink it while you tell them you did some research on the internet before showing up for your visit. You know, they 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 don't like that. And I can understand why. Obviously, there's a lot of um, wrong information out there, but on the balance, you know, the more progressive uh, uh, health teams um, value that patients take an interest in their health and their data. And, and it's the, you know, that's where it's all going. The generational shift, both on the provider and the patient side. And so this is going to be really exciting. Uh, and at the end of the day, you know, you know, there's this quote from this guy, Mark Brittnell, the head of healthcare at KPMG uh, out in the UK, that, you know, patients are the most untapped, uh, renewable, natural resource of healthcare. Right. So you think of, you know, climate change and how the sun is an incredible resource, you know, instead of having to keep taking oil out of the ground, that's what patients are, right? Like they're, they live with their stuff 24 seven, they have the tools, they have the data and they're learning to manage it. And, you know, to be honest, about 80% of the time, you and I, and everybody listening to this podcast, you know, recognizes our symptoms, already has an algorithm of what's going on, treats it and fixes it without ever entering the formal healthcare system. Like we already do that most of the time. And so it's just, how can we do that even more and more um, with the support of uh, highly trained experts, uh, but not with them telling us what to do. So that's that shift, very powerful. And that's the underpinning of this book. You, you know, you might've mentioned maybe on your show called The Patient Will See You Now. Uh, I love that you book. Know, that's my required reading <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> by Dr. Eric Topol. Where in one book, this you know very profound, internationally renowned doctor and scientist from Scripps in the U.S. captured this whole movement of people-powered health uh, in one excellent book. Um, so it's a good way to understand and educate about this movement. And so it, when Eric Topol wrote that, it was a few years ago too, which I now seen since he came out with that book. You know, the wave is really starting. I feel like it's starting to pick up. But then again, I'm a part of that wave. So maybe I need to take a step outside of it. Look at the data. Look at the statistics. Every number is up in terms of um, what people say they want to do in terms of uh, other modalities or other tools that are not this paternalistic kind of physical way. And then what they actually are doing, uh, it's, it's every number is up, if not double digits in terms of the proportion of the population that's moving in this direction. So it's great to see. It has to go that way. All of society is digital um, and hyper-personalized, decentralized. I mean, it's just healthcare and pretty much education are the two last sectors of the economy that are just about 10 years behind. Okay, so then the last shift is not about kind of what happens to the patient or anything like the other five, but it's a business model shift or or a shift in the currency, right? And, you know, the currency of healthcare has always been one number, which is cost. You know, we, we see it as a cost center. 
we describe it as it costs this and it costs that and will this reduce costs and costs are based on inputs volume transactions pills doctor visits it's a transaction and or a volume based paradigm the shift again because we have data because <laughs> we have technology because we actually care what happens to the patient not what happens to the costs uh, is a shift to what we call value based uh, paradigm or model or uh, instead of focusing on inputs, you're focusing on the result or the outcomes. That's the currency, is the result. Uh, wow, that changes a lot of things, right? Because you know, if everything is largely paid for on a fee-for-service paradigm, which means you know, I pay by the doctor visit, I pay by the pill, I pay by the unit of whatever, and now imagine a world where we only pay when we get the result. Right. And so when I explain this to my students, I'm like, imagine, you know, I'm your professor, you're paying $90,000 for this MBA. Imagine if I only get paid, you know, to teach this course and I get paid basically by course, irrespective of what happens. Um, what if I only get paid when you get a great job? <laughs> how does that change how I work and what we do and how we organize university? That paradigm is what's happening in, in health and medicine. Not 100% of the time, but a good portion where you know, incenting on the outcome instead of incenting on the activity is going to get the result that is superior. Yeah. And I think uh, Chris Kresser may have touched on this in one of his books, but talking about how they tiered their payment system based on the success outcome of the functional medicine clinic. But it's an interesting model. I, I think you and I have talked before, but there is a potential downside to this, right? In terms of patient selection. Yeah, again, that's why you wouldn't do it across the board. But, you know, you know, some of the reasons why people right away say, you know, no, this is a bad idea is they go to the extreme examples and the abuse examples, which I think is the worst way to criticize an idea <laughs> from the anecdotes or the outliers, you know, that, you know, if I'm a doc and I'm, I'm going to be incented on the results or the outcomes of my roster of patients, then I'm not going to accept, you know, the 75-year-old complex comorbid person who has dementia. Because the chances anything I do is going to help them get a better outcome is slim. I'm rather going to take the people like Boomer and all of his listeners <laughs> who are healthy and aware and because it's a walk in the park. And there's some outcomes-based doctor clinics who actually get paid when they don't see their patients, right? Because if they're seeing their patients, something's wrong. <laughs> and that's sort of the – that's – in a way, sort of like the gym model where you buy the gym membership and people yeah. know nobody shows up, right? Which is yeah. probably not what you yeah. want. But yeah, imagine if you know good life or the gym got paid only when your health your your goals were met, right? That would change the whole paradigm of how the you know their business model works. That's what we're talking about in healthcare. <laughs> You'd have a uh, lot of bankrupt gyms out there, right? Uh, you would, or you know, that's disruption, right? When somebody comes in with a superior business model and you can't change your business model fast enough, you're out. Right. And it's funny, I was just tweeting this morning, like we already still can't deal with what Lyft and Uber did to the established taxi industry. And the taxi industry could have done all those things themselves. They had distribution, they had drivers, they had everything. They just didn't. Lyft is now offering a subscription service. You know, you pay one price for, you know, some kind of an unlimited number of cab rides. Right. They're already blowing up their own business model. You know, they're, they're Netflixing themselves like Netflix did to Netflix. So the ability to blow up business models like that in healthcare does not exist. It is just not done. It has not changed. And as you know, when, when dollars shift, when value pools shift, there will be a lot of reasons people don't want that to happen. And that's very normal. 
and and this is like kind of the last bastion that you know is gonna if we don't crack this all those other shifts i told you about are going to continue to be at the surface and at the margins they're going to be pockets and not fundamental because uh, you need a new business model to allow them to really happen at scale. And at this last one you mentioned, there's a lot in the way and getting in your way, not just these institutions, but these institutions have a lot of lobby money and mm -hmm. there is a lot of existing regulation, particularly in healthcare, no matter where you yep. are, right? So you have yep. all kinds of things just in the way. Tons. I mean, that's system change. I mean, that's why, you know, there's systems like the Catholic Church who haven't, you know, and institutions haven't changed in thousands of years. <laughs> there's a reason for that. And it's not, I'm not criticizing it. It's just what it is, right? And so that's what a lot of my work at Mars was, you know, we did system level innovation. You know, yes, the tech is there. It's incredible. But if we don't remodel the system to allow these new things to transpire, they won't work at scale. So policy, behaviors, structures, regulation, like so much has to change to, uh, to unlock the opportunity because institutions were designed to never change. You know, you, you basically design out change. Uh, that's great. You want your institutions to not change, right? But when the outside forces are so massive and they're pressuring these institutions, usually what happens in disruption theory is they just go away because they can't change. And the new players come in and that becomes the dominant paradigm. So you've touched on a lot of things in terms of the future of health, Zena. And as a person who uh, I'm very optimistic about the future, but recognize that there are some potential challenges or, you know, road bumps, landmines, whatever you want to call them. What do you think are some of the concerns or do you have any concerns about some of these technologies like AI, CRISPR? Are we going to have Skynet? Are we going to have designer babies? Is this coming to be a brave new world? Yeah, so a big part of what we do at Singularity is exactly this, is provide, provide a form to understand these big exponentials and what they might do so that we can all have kind of a bit of a shared view of the future. Uh, it's much easier to build towards the future if you kind of know what it might look like. But then to also put on the table all these other uh, unintended consequences, uh, or frankly, just consequences. They're not, you know. So yes, those risks are there, uh, and some of them might materialize, and it all ends up being, you know, a weighing of the benefit of the movement versus you know these these unintended consequences and managing them very proactively and well right so i'll just give you an example right you know if you're a woman and a man and you're or a woman whatever and you're trying to get pregnant and you've tried everything and it's not working you know, we have this incredible technology called in vitro fertilization, you know, where you kind of prepare these embryos in vitro out of the body. And then, you know, if an egg forms, you can you know, plant it. And then sometimes it can actually work and grow into a beautiful child. And, and that is amazing. And most advanced health systems actually have found that to be a, a moral right. And it's funded by the state. Well, if you can select the embryo, like most cases, people just want something to work so they can have a baby. Um, well, some jurisdictions don't have strong laws about embryo selection, and they have thousands and thousands to choose from. Uh, so like China, their rate per month of selecting out the embryos that might not have features that the parents want uh, is way higher than anywhere else in the world, right? So you multiply that by a billion you know, plus um, population. Over time, you could actually be selecting for a population that has a certain set of traits. 
Um, and whatever those traits are, it could be, you know, for, for brain power to deal with, you know, all the problems in the world. It could be looks. It could be, I don't know, height, uh, whatever it is, uh, lactose. Olympic and, gymnastics teams, those kind of things. It could be that thing, you know. But um, so that, that's, you know, opening up some questions that I think we have to have as a species, right, about this. You know, and, and so things like that. And AI, I mean, sure, we think, oh, the robots and the machines are going to take over the world. And But, like, look at the flip side, right? You know, when, you know, a good proportion of the time, you know, a radiologist makes a mistake when they you know, try to interpret an image, whether you have cancer, so false negative, false positive, because they're human, the algorithm in their brain doesn't have enough data points, you know, to make, you know, a 100% accurate decision, but you put 4 million data points through an AI algorithm, and it will make the decision accurately. Like, what do you want, right? Would you rather know you have the cancer without a mistake? Or, you know, do you not want that because you're afraid robots are going to take over the world? Right. So, so I think there's just, there's, there's forums now to have an adult conversation about these things and manage the risks instead of exclude those risks and therefore don't do anything. What are some of your top resources for people who want to, who think of themselves as futurists or just want to explore this health future? What do you, what do you recommend reading? Yeah, what's been fascinating is how much even the lay media and lay publications are uh, really starting to get on top of all these shifts that I talked about, because uh, it's very exciting. All of us have an experience of healthcare, whether it's us, our family, our parents. Once you see the underbelly, you start to get very interested in, you know, how is this going to change? So probably the top person I'd say to follow, and then his whole platform is this doctor from Hungary, Berci Mesko, B-E-R-C-I-M-E-S-K-O. He's a doctor and a PhD and a medical futurist. That's his title the medical futurist, he has pre created a whole suite of, of online and print uh, products, videos, articles, very multimedia, very omni-channel to kind of educate the lay public about these shifts. He uses his own body, uh, you know, for science and tries all the, you know, the latest gadgets. So, uh, so I think that's a very accessible uh, toolkit uh, from his, his website and what have you and his books. Um, there's other gurus to follow, like Dr. Eric Topol. You know, all I do is just read Topol's tweets every day because he does a really good job curating what's happening and, and make sense of it. So Dr. Eric Topol, uh, uh, Dr. Daniel Kraft from Singularity, he's the chair of Exponential Medicine. Uh, you know, watch what he's talking about and writing about. Um, and then other players like the World Economic Forum, uh, you know, and all the consultancies, PwC and KPMG and BCG and McKinsey, they all publish these reports of, you know, the top 10 shifts or the big trends or the, you know, those are a great way to get it all distilled in a way that you can process. And of course, follow my Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll link to all of this in the show notes at yep. decodingsuperhuman.com backslash Zayna, Z-A-Y-N-A. But Zaina, I have three more questions sure. for you and I'll let you go. Uh, but the first one, what's top technology that you use to make yourself more superhuman? Yeah, so, uh, you know, depends what you're calling superhuman. I don't, to me, that just means augmenting, you know, what I can't do, you know, with my um, uh, physical or analog methodologies. <laughs> so for me, it's not that sexy, but, I, you know, I use uh, two major apps uh, to kind of help manage my own self-care for diet and exercise uh, and so one is uh, my fitness pal 
So I literally just use that every day. It's integrated with my phone, my Apple Watch, just to log my food, my calories, the distribution of the food, and my, and of course, it collects all my physical activity, and I log all my exercise in that. So that helps me kind of just kind of look at every week as a week and go, okay, how did I do this week? You know, what might I adjust? And it's very motivating because I'm embarrassed when I go over my kind of calorie target for the day. It, 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 I've seen major impact compared to, you know, willpower. <laughs> Um, and then the other is a um, an online kind of coaching platform called Precision Nutrition that I've subscribed to. So I pay a fee and that's got, you know, uh, I've got my own coach in the cloud, a team in the cloud, and then oh, every day a set of activities and lessons. Uh, and it's really at the end of the day, a behavior change platform. It's just, I'm focusing it on uh, diet and nutrition. Um, so that's what I use. And then, uh, uh, when I'm feeling like I need some stillness and my brain's going too fast, uh, I use a Muse um, meditation headband, which is like a four-channel EEG, uh, and that's made by a great Toronto company. So um, I've got uh, ample access to them. Yeah, I think you've got a couple of uh, Canadian companies in there. You may be a little bit biased, yeah. though. Uh, <laughs> you know, Dr. John Berardi puts out some great content in terms of the nutrition front. So I, I really appreciate everything that uh, Precision Nutrition does. So yeah. second question is, uh, you know, top piece of advice for people who want to increase that cognition. So you mentioned Muse, but just yeah. anything that you find that helps you really assimilate information faster it's funny so i read all these things about yeah how to get your brain to peak performance and and i'm like i think my brain is performs pretty well like i'm quite smart i can integrate things so i have no desire to get sharper like it's just it's not a gap i guess for me uh, i'm sometimes i think too sharp for my own good because I, I process things way too fast compared to most lay people so so it's not a personal interest to me but what i will say uh, you know from what i've read and what personally i know is this whole world of sleep, you know, sleep will be what sugar is today and what smoking was a decade ago, right? It is fundamental to everything. And I'm sure it comes up on your show. And then, you know, uh, everybody knows, you know, the, the data around just sleep quality and, you know, all aspects of performance. And so for me, that's a pretty big one, you know, just so not just not so I can be sharp, but so I can be well. Uh, and, and the work I do is really hard. You know, I always say I come home after a day of doing innovation work in healthcare and I have a collaboration hangover, right? Like it's hard. Like we're trying to get glue things together, change behavior, deal with stuff, you know. So I need to be well and still and sleep for me is a big one. So I use, you know, you know, uh, meditation and just even apps that play meditative music um, to put me to bed if, if my brain's spinning too fast. So I think it's sleep. Yeah, sleep for me is that sort of Archimedes lever as well, uh, just for everything. Because if I don't get my seven and a half, eight hours, I am I, I notice a significant drop off in what I'm able to do throughout the day. We've had uh, Dr. Benjamin Smar on this show before, and he's from University of California at Berkeley, studies chronobiology for a living. And so just for people who are looking for additional things just on sleep, that's a good place to go. Another great one that's just more maybe accessible from a is like Arianna Huffington from the Huffington Post. I mean, she had a, a you know, a wake-up call around this sleep thing and she articulates it so well. And that's now her mission, right? Her mission is to educate the world about sleep, you know, as a media 
a platform. She's not a scientist, obviously. So it's very accessible, her story. And I think her book is The Sleep Revolution, if I remember correctly. Yes. Uh, and then her mission or her company, well, that part of her company is Thrive Global, uh, which is awesome. I, I love what she's doing. And Yeah, I heard her interview on, on Oprah's podcast, her Super Soul Sunday podcast with Ariana, and where she kind of tells the story of what happened, of why she had this kind of, you, you know, eye-opening moment and it changed her life forever. Uh, and it's just, I just found it very accessible. I think any of us can relate to getting, you know, being at that point or close to that point <laughs> and, and not letting it get that bad. Uh, I've, uh, I've actually crossed that line many times before and I'm sure you as a high performer, it, it does happen, right? Yeah. <laughs> but uh, last question, yep. and maybe you can take this sort of book recommendation in any way you want, but top book you've read on peak performance or top book you recommend? Yeah, so again, much like, you know, I don't really think about peak performance because I perform generally quite well and I have a lot of other things in my life I need to fix. <laughs> um, um, so for me, I think of performance again around what we're trying to do here uh, because we care, which is fixing the health system. Um, and so a lot of that requires change of multiple people's mindset and behaviors at the same time across, you know, a whole set of actors. So like a book, like any of the change management books, like good to great would be, you know, kind of what I use to, you know, find new strategies when things are getting stuck. <clears throat> so I look at performance on a kind of ecosystem level instead of on an individual level. That, thank you so much. And good to great by Jim Collins, right? Yeah, that's it. Well, Zaina, where can people find out more about you? So, I mean, like I said, I think the primary to get it into my head of how I'm thinking, what excites me, and sometimes I'll do some provocative comments about it is Twitter. So at Zaina Kayat, Z-A-Y-N-A-K-H-A-Y-A-T. Um, uh, LinkedIn as well, a little bit, not so much. Um, and then, uh, and then I'm, you know, Google me, you know, most of my lectures for Singularity University are online. Uh, so these six shifts we just talked about, you could get a little bit more depth. And then uh, I now, I've just kind of moved back to Canada and, and started a new role as the, the, the futurist with Canada's largest home care agency called St. Elizabeth. And so uh, we just, actually today we'll put our website up for our futures team. And that's a good way to kind of access our team and our work, uh, which is the whole shift of healthcare to the home. Uh, and we are going to be, you know, a major force using innovation to enable that shift. That's incredible. Well, of course, I'll link to the website in the show notes, but also yeah. this is, I, I look forward to reading the website myself. Zaina, this information that you've given us, the the six shifts, all of the recommendation terms in terms of resources, everything, incredibly valuable. Thank you so much for taking the time. But uh, I really appreciate you coming on the show. And I love seeing you speak at Singularity University. So I hope to see you there in the near future. Thanks for having me. And last tip to listeners, when you're encountering the health system, try to create the future. Don't enable the past, right? Ask for more demand more challenge what you see that's the only way this is going to happen thank you boomer that's great advice thank you so much Zena. superhumans it's boomer anderson once again just two asks before you go number one can you go over to itunes check it out but also leave us a five-star review it really helps us in terms of getting the word out about decoding superhuman and number two i would love to hear from you what do you think of this podcast what would you change what would you add what topics do you want 
If you can email me over at podcast at decodingsuperhuman.com, that's podcast spelled P-O-D-C-A-S-T at decodingsuperhuman.com, I would love to hear from you. Superhumans, have an epic day.